Our scripture reading for today is Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to John, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on Jesus. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to begin a study in Matthew's Gospel today, and that will take us through till after Christmas. And we'll circle back around Advent to the birth narrative, which takes place earlier before this. We're going to start today in chapter 3. And I trust that as we go through this uh, study together, that the gospel uh, goes into your ears fresh and new. For those of you who have been in church for many years, that the word of God that is living and active would speak to you in fresh and new and profound, deep ways. And for those of you who are with us exploring Christian faith, and my prayer for you is that this would be uh, a, a journey, an experience that would open your eyes and open your heart uh, to see who it is that Jesus is, what he came to do, and uh, the glory of his grace in that. This morning we're going to look at uh, three things from this passage. Firstly, the significance of the setting. Secondly, the liberation of repentance. And thirdly, the display of grace in baptism. But first, just a couple of words on the significance of this setting. Um, this setting is actually quite helpful because it presents Christian faith uh, not as an abstract spiritual claim, but it's actually concrete and a historical and theological claim. That we are, as I often say, um, rooting our faith in something that actually happened in human history. That God is a track record of faithfulness and love for millennia through Uh, human history. And the reason that we can believe of this supernatural event and all the supernatural events that take place throughout the Gospels is precisely because in 33 AD, 
under Pontius Pilate, Jesus Christ was crucified, and three days later, all of history, whether it is the Bible, Roman antiquity, or the Babylonian Talmud, they are all recording that that tomb was empty. That's a fact. The question is, why was it empty? As Christians, we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that becomes the, the foothold for the significance of the setting here um, in this passage, and it shows us a couple of things, how God's moved through history to this point. Firstly, you see that John is clothed in, in hair, and he's got a leather belt around his waist, and he's eating locusts and honey, and this seems like an obscure reference. The details can kind of be lost for us, but this is actually a word-for-word description of a prophet named Elijah, who millennia earlier uh, is described in a precisely the same way in Second uh, Kings chapter 1. And it's not that John is trying to sort of replicate Elijah's work like a kid who's enthralled with an athlete wants to wear their jersey and John's like, I'm going to model my game after this guy. That's not what's going on here. The reason why John is described with the precise description of Elijah is because John was born to continue uh, the, the prophetic work of those who are saying that a Messiah was, was to come. Uh, he was born to continue it. He was destined to do it. So this is absolutely intentionally on the nose. In Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5, it's prophesied. And even at John's birth, his father, Zechariah, says in Luke chapter 1, John will also go up before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So all of this description, even of John, that's their intention like a spotlight. I don't know if you've ever been to a, a presentation where the theater goes pitch black and a spotlight hits the stage. If you've ever been in a situation like that, your eyes can't go anywhere else. You are just instinctively drawn there. And that's what's going on here in the significance of this setting. Our eyes are being drawn there. That Matthew is writing things uh, intentionally in such a way that his first audience would say, whoa, we've, we, we recognize this. The second thing is that this is taking place at the Jordan. And... In English, we say, we call Jesus, Jesus. In Hebrew, Jesus is Yeshua. And if you go back to the Old Testament, you'll find there is another Yeshua, Joshua. Joshua is the predecessor, uh, or sorry, he's the successor after uh, Moses, who takes God's people into the promised land. So those first readers would have read and Yeshua crossed the Jordan, right? And Yeshua was leading God's people into the land of promise. And here we have at the Jordan, the new and greater Yeshua, the, the, the fulfillment of all scripture, Yeshua at the Jordan, where he is beginning his ministry to take the people of God into the promised land. The promised land not being defined as a small piece of, of, of land in the Middle East, the promised land in an ultimate sense being salvation. For the Jews and the small little plot of land in the Middle East. But every nation. Every nation that would turn their faith to Jesus Christ. So here we have Yeshua at the Jordan. I say this because Jesus could have taken the name. The, the angels could have said to, to Mary and Joseph. Name him Adam, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. There's a lot of names that could have been chosen. But they said name him Yeshua. For he will save his people from their sins. The significance of this as well, you'll recall that Moses did not enter into the promised land. If you're new to the scriptures, Moses died outside the promised land. He didn't go in. And the reason he didn't go in was because he misrepresented God's heart. 
He disobeyed God. God said, speak to this rock that miraculously water would uh, be, be present for the people of God. And Moses, in his anger at the people, struck the rock and he disobeyed God. It wasn't just mere disobedience, but misrepresenting the heart of God. And so Moses' punishment for not keeping the law of God was he does not enter into the promised land. Now, of course, he goes on to into the presence of God after he dies. But God, God specifically makes a statement here, which is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, which is you're not going to get into the promised land by keeping the law. Because nobody keeps the law. You need grace. And so here, right at the beginning, at the Jordan, Yeshua is leading his people into the promised land. And other gospel writers say that the law came from Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That Christ would fulfill all things, be the fulfillment of all of these things. And so we got this major theme here in Matthew of the kingdom is coming. The strong theme throughout all scripture of exile and homecoming. That there's a homecoming that's coming. The people of God have been in exile. And Jesus is the one who is going to bring us uh, into this glorious thing called salvation. Not by our keeping the law, which none of us can do, which nobody did. But by, through his grace and by him coming and being in our place. Now let's move on. From the significance of the setting to the liberation of repentance. Um, repent, for many of us, when we think about repenting, we think about it mostly in terms of feelings. Like, I feel bad, I feel sorrow, I feel guilty, and so I'm praying to God and I'm saying, please forgive me. And, you know, all of those things are true, that there's elements of recognizing that, you know, God is a God of love and grace and we love him and... And like children who don't want to hurt the hearts of our Father, there is a sorrow to it. But that's not ultimately what repentance means at all. It's not about sadness and sorrow and repentance. It's an action word. It demands an action. To repent, which was a word that was being used in the culture, it meant some news has come that is so significant it demands that you change your direction. And so the message that, that John is bringing is that the kingdom has come, the Christ has come, the Messiah has come, and it's a message that is absolutely so life-changing and majestic. It demands a change in direction. It demands a response, this thing called repentance. The, the liberation of repentance, as we sort of unpack this, is that it is, it, it liber, uh, repentance is liberating because we live in a greater sense of congruence with how we were created. We live in a greater sense of congruence, a true sense of joy that is not... So fragile that we are hinged to circumstances, just held hostage by whatever happens today. That the liberation of repentance, of turning from being our own gods to the God, bending our knee to Jesus Christ and trusting in Him as Savior, is that that begins to do a deep liberating work in our heart, whereby our hope is a true anchor. It's not so volatile. When everything around us is crashing and burning, that there is, a, there is a buoyancy in the human soul because we are connected to our God. We are in congruence with the one who has created us. And so there is a liberation in this repentance. There, there is a meaning in life that is ultimate. You can, of course, have meaning in life without God and without Jesus Christ, but that meaning is not an ultimate sense of meaning. It's a trivial and it's a, it's a temporary, uh, sort of personalized, customized um, sense of meaning. You can organize your life around anything. You can say the meaning of life is this, and this is why I wake up in the morning, and this is what matters most. But uh, the liberation of repentance is it dials us out of this small thing that we say life is all about, that ultimately time is, is going to sweep it away. 
With enough time, everything you love and care about and value will be swept away. That's what time does. Without the liberation of repentance, of trusting in God and and tethering ourselves to Jesus Christ and who he is and who he claimed to be, um, then there is a futility and a smallness to what we call meaning in life. Because it's only true and meaningful because we happen to say it is, and we can't think very deeply about where humanity is headed in the next, say, 500 years after we're all gone. Because if you think about that deeply, that thing you're calling meaning is being drained of significance at an alarming pace. So for life to have meaning, for humanity to have meaning, for the human soul to truly be connected to our maker in such a way that there is true liberation, it requires this thing called repentance. Which isn't just, John's not going around and saying, your sinners feel bad about it. It's way too small. He's saying, the king has come, the Messiah has come, the one who is prophesied has come, God has condescended and incarnated and has become man. He has come. And that is such a game changer that he's not come to destroy us. He's actually come to save us. That demands an action. That requires an about face. A willingness to turn. And so it's, the gospel is this life-changing, massive, displacing message. And this is why John was so angry with the religious people. This is why he was so frustrated with the Pharisees. You see in the text that we, we just read it, they've come, they've come to watch the confession, but they've not come to confess. They've come to watch the baptisms, but they've not come to be baptized. They've not come to receive anything. And as, as a result of that, as you read through the Gospels, for those of you who are familiar with the Scripture, realize that the Pharisees are not people of compassion. They are living a life of comparison. That they're not commended by Jesus in any way ever even though they're the greatest rule keepers of anybody. If anybody was keeping the law, 613 laws in the Torah, it was the Pharisees. But Jesus, God incarnate, did not say, hey, everybody, pay attention to these guys. If anyone's keeping the law, it's them. Be more like them. There's nothing Jesus ever said that sounded like that because their hearts were so far from this thing called repentance, which would be true liberation leading into true joy. And in fact, then their, their priesthood would have looked completely different. They would have reflected the heart of God instead of causing people to leave their presence feeling even more burdened than when they showed up in the first time. So when you read verses 7 through 10, you see that John is criticizing them because they think they're okay on the basis of externals. Their heritage, their family, their rule-keeping. We're the children of Abraham. Right? They're flexing on their lineage, but they don't reflect the heart of God. Their hearts are actually quite far from God. And as you work through the Gospels, you realize that the Gospel of Jesus Christ is forgiving grace the liberation of repentance, this is not the end of obedience to God. It's the end of relying on obedience to God. So repentance doesn't just begin with this changing behavior. It begins with believing the message and receiving that message. And that awe, as we studied when we were looking through the Proverbs, that awe of God, that, that uh, fear of God being defined as being drawn to him, that's what leads to the actual turning. So repentance is inside out because the nature of the gospel is inside out. Many of you have uh, children, and even if you don't have children, you'll remember when you were young, and your parents asked you to clean your room or obey or do something. They asked you to, to clean the dishes. And you did it, but you whined the entire time. And some of you are dealing with this in your parenting of young children right now. Right? 
Okay, it's time to clean up. That's throwing the toys in the toy box. And you look around the room and there's not one toy left on the ground. But none of you as a parent are like, that's exactly what I was after. You nailed it. Right? It, the fact that the room is spotless is not the point. And this is, this is John's criticism of the Pharisees. And this is going to be Jesus' criticism all through uh, the Gospels. Is they've, they've not been liberated by true repentance. And that is the phase one of the Gospel. Verse 2, John says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All kingdoms, you know, come and go. We've been talking about this. But Christ's kingdom is eternal. And it addresses the deepest longings in the human soul. Because we are reacquainted with our God who came and condescended to be with us. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the purpose for the turning. You know, in Genesis, if we go back, and I, I talk about this regularly. That in Genesis, when our sin broke everything, that was a deep shattering And the kingdom at hand is that God has come to put together what none of us through lives of, uh, you know, um, wise living or or sociological, civic, political developments or scientific innovations. None of us us are going to fix the planet. We can do good work and we can love our neighbor and we can be positive influences in the city. And there's a lot of really great things we can do shoulder to shoulder. Christians and Muslims and atheists and agnostics, we can all sit around the table here at the downtown community center and come up with ways to try and cause the city to flourish in sort of a general kindness and care for each other. All of that can happen. But what we can't do is cure the brokenness of humanity. What we can't do is solve the ultimate human problem, which is this thing called the graveyard which is the trajectory of life. But the kingdom at hand means God has come to deal with the root problem, which is the graveyard, the trajectory of life. He has come to give us what, the, what ultimately the human soul wants because eternity is in our hearts, Ecclesiastes 3 says. And he's come to redeem us from the finality of death and to lead us into a true flourishing as we reflect the love and the grace of God. And in Genesis, when everything broke, it was a comprehensive breaking. You see that, the, that we're, we're disenfranchised from nature in Genesis. We're disenf- the, the earth starts to not yield forth fruit like it was supposed to. The world is broken. We're disenfranchised from each other. Adam and Eve are hiding from each other. Adam and Eve are hiding from God. They're covering themselves with fig leaves. They're, they're, actually, disenfranchised, they're actually dislocated even from, which, from themselves as they're grappling with, uh, you know, grappling with shame. It's like a wine glass falling into a ceramic sink. You're not just easily putting that thing back together. That thing is not getting back together. And that was the problem of Genesis. And, and, and here in, in verse 2, it says that the kingdom of God is hand. In verse 3, he's, he goes on to say, make, make his path straight. It's an interesting phrase. It actually comes from, I'm borrowing from Clark here, who's a New Testament scholar. The idea comes from this practice in the East, Eastern uh, ancient monarchs where when they were heading to a, a region, they would send these harbingers before them to prepare their passage. So they would actually make highways. They would actually go and they would fill in holes and they would knock down hills and they would clear trees and they would make the path straight so that when the monarch came through, the path was made ready for them. This is the image of making the path straight. And they, essentially they went forward to remove the the impediments. So John is saying his ministry is to come and to make that path straight. And part of making the path straight was was taking shots across the bow at this dead religion that the Pharisees were up to, which wasn't leading people to God, but actually making them feel crushed uh, 
and very far from God. You know, the Pharisees are flexing on being children of Abraham, but what God said to Abraham was, through you all the nations will be blessed. But when you look at the, what the religious leaders were doing, was they weren't blessing the nations. They weren't caring for the quartet of the vulnerable, right? The poor, the widow, the orphan, the refugee. They weren't doing any of those things. And so John's come before Jesus to, to sort of make this path straight, to clear it out. I think you and I can think about that as it relates to our own repentance and making the path straight to look at... Look in the mirror and ask ourselves what potholes got to get filled in and what impediments are there in our hearts and our lives, the things that we're clinging to that actually need to be removed to make the path straight. Not so that God will accept us because we're already accepted by his grace, but because that is true, what can I clear out of my heart, my mind, my life that is contrary to the wisdom and the love and the grace and the nature of God uh, so that with that sense of joy... I'm making the path straight of my king, the one that I love. How do we enjoy our life in Christ through this, the liberation of the sort of repentance? Or do I kind of have a weird antinomian view of grace, where grace is just like this thing that doesn't ask anything of me? Terrible theology on grace. Oh, grace. Thank God for grace. I don't have to do anything. What? How in the world did you read the words of Jesus and come to that conclusion? The truth is you don't have to earn anything. I say, what is it? That, oh God, would you remove these things from my heart and my life so I can reflect your glory? Not have, be like an episode of hoarders. And be like, hey, I got to keep that. I like that. I love that thing. No, you got to get rid of that. That thing is terrible. Hey, no, but I like it. I got to keep it in my life. No, we got to get rid of it. So he's making the path straight. If you look at verse 8, what he says in verse 8 to uh, the Pharisees is, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. An interesting phrase. Bear fruit in keeping with the repentance. Right? Because, of course, they, they didn't have any fruit that resembled repentance at all. And uh, as I said before, the, the, what he's calling them to, what he's calling all the people of God to, is this liberation, this, this fruit. Of course, this is done by the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, these things together. But that we would desire these things. And in the keeping of the path straight, that means we will flourish not by removing restrictions, but by having the right restrictions. You know, you think of musicians who are locked into key signature and key, and they seem free, like they can do absolutely anything on that instrument, but they're actually locked in. They're locked into things that enable them to flourish. Find me a musician that doesn't want to lock into tempo, doesn't want, doesn't want to lock into the circle of fifths, has never heard of the circle of fifths. That musician is not free on their instrument. They're bad at it. One time my family and I were singing at a fundraiser, not, not, this, not my nuclear family, like when I, was a, when I was young as a kid, me and my siblings and my, oh, we were going to sing at this fundraiser for our school. And my sister, who was a tremendous singer, the rest of us can sing, you know, in terms of like we could carry a tune, but my, one, my sister is an excellent singer. And right before we were supposed to sing, she got sick. And we were like, oh no. And we were like, well, maybe we should just do it without her. And somebody else, one of us will do her part. And then, and then my mom said, I'll do her part. And we were like, okay. And then the music started and the track started. And then my mom started on the wrong note. And then my mom sang her whole verse in the wrong key. And, and the way we broke it all up was we all had, all of us had different lines as siblings. So then my mom sang it wrong. And then my sister sang it wrong. And then I was like, I was coming, getting to me. And then, then I sang it in the right key, but in the wrong octave. So I was an octave high. This thing was a disaster. See, the, 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 the modern 
the modern understanding of freedom and liberation is just, hey, if I love it, if I want it, it can't possibly be wrong. Remove the restriction. Well, that's just bad music for the soul. But when we're locked into the wisdom of God, we're willing to say, hey, I want to make his path straight. I want to make way for him. What I've got to remove here so that I can enjoy my life in God. I'll move on to the last thing, the final thing as we close, which is the display of grace in baptism. You know, Jesus Christ is a king who comforts, but before he comforts us, he does confront us. It does require this repentance. Jesus does, does ask us the question, who am I? Who am I to you? And then our answer to that requires a response. And there's a display of grace in baptism because think about this. Jesus, up until this point, had spent 30 years in the community as a carpenter. The divine creator condescends, wraps himself in human flesh and lives his life as a maker, doing the dignity of good work as a carpenter. 30 years. The community knows him. People know him. Hey, that's Joseph and Mary's boy. They know him. And he is going to be baptized like all these sinners. In other words, he looks just like all the other sinners. Do you see how humiliating this is? Jesus, the one who needs no repentance, Jesus, the one who needs no cleansing, is identifying with the humanity who needs cleansing, who needs repentance. As far as anyone is concerned, Jesus just looked like anybody else going there would have created a huge misunderstanding. But you know, Jesus was okay with, with the condescension and the misunderstanding. He was misunderstood all the time having lunch with prostitutes and tax collectors and drunkards. He was called a lot of terrible things by the religious community because he was just okay for the sake of grace to be with those who needed cleansing. And so here you see this de- demonstrated even in his baptism, even before it happens, just identifying with, with, with it. You know, John's baptism was a uh, baptism of repentance. There were ceremonial cleansings in Jewish culture um, but what makes this special, so it, was, it isn't new, is what I'm saying. There was ceremonial cleansings, cleansings when there were Gentiles who wanted to convert to Judaism. They would be baptized, they would be cleansed. So this isn't like a new thing. But what makes this so staggering is that no self-respecting ancient Jew would go and be baptized in, in a manner of a Gentile because the act of their baptism was saying, I'm so far from God, I'm as far from God as a Gentile. So culturally speaking, in that ancient context, this is a monstrous revival. The people are like, I need God. I've come far, I am very far from God. And so Jesus is going and he's identifying with these people, yet he is God. There's a tremendous grace in his baptism. Verse 11 says, John says that we would be baptized with fire. And there's this power of God throughout all of scripture that the fire of God illuminates and consumes and refines. And he's saying that I'm baptizing externally with this water. But Jesus Christ is coming to baptize in such a way that in the same way that water removes the dirt, the baptism of the Holy Spirit that comes through Jesus Christ, the baptism of his fire is going to do a cleansing that is internal and deep and tremendous. John doesn't want to baptize him, but Jesus knows it's integral to his ministry to identify with those who need the cleansing. And there's a sense where this is a new beginning for Jesus. You know, your baptism, my baptism is a new beginning. When we baptize our, our children, we're, we're marking them from their infancy and we're saying these children belong to God. They've been given the covenant sign and they're raised with that knowledge. And when they profess their faith in Christ, there is, a, there is a newness, a power in the baptism. Some of you baptize as adults. There is a turning, there is a change. You know, in Jesus' baptism, he didn't have to turn from any sin. But he turned from his carpentry, he turned from his vocation, he turned from his friendships and his family, he turned from his entire life as he knew it, an earthly vocation, an earthly calling, to his heavenly calling. 
This massive change, even in the life of Jesus, we see. I'm borrowing from a New Testament scholar, Frederick Bruce, who, who, uh, who points this out to us to see that this creator born of a virgin who's come in the humility of this carpenter who's now moving into this ministry of grace for us. And we see the Trinity represented here as the, as the son is baptized, as the spirit comes as a dove and rests upon Christ. And as the father proclaims from heaven, those words that this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Church, as I close, I want to encourage you to remember your baptism. Because the truth is of your baptism, if you are in Jesus Christ, every morning when you wake up before your feet hit the floor, God says of you, because you are united to him, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. You and I don't deserve that, but that's our standing before God because of what Christ has done. Now, may the magnitude of that grace, may the magnitude of that forgiveness cause us to live in the liberation of a life of repentance. Not of knuckle-dragging and sadness, but of joy as we're willing to go forward from this place, live out new humanity in love and wisdom and generosity. May the message of our lives not be echoes of the dreams and the frustrations or the hopes or the woes of our culture, but may the message of our lives be a voice of hope as the gospel is our message. May our hope and our joy and the strength of Jesus Christ and who he is be our anchor. The king has come and he is coming again. May you and I live to the glory of the one who has saved us. Let's pray.